The Nerdalogs is a local sketch group that writes comedy based on shared, true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And most importantly, your stories is a place to bring people up, not put anyone down. Try and keep your stories around five minutes, laugh at jokes, cry if appropriate, and applaud everyone who has the guts to sit here, tell a story, and come out as a nerd. Hey guys, my name is Eric Arnell, and welcome to the June episode of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Podcast. This month, it's all about family, and we've got an extra-sized episode for you today, featuring speakers Chris Crotwell, Sawyer Heppies, Nora Seidman, Bill Kenkel, Mike Galladay, Joe Gennaro, Sean Boyle, Rebecca, Charlie Cannell, and Andrew Bentley, as well as a song from myself and Dwight Hassler. Why so many speakers? Well, friends, unfortunately, about a third of our recording was lost to a corrupt file, and that includes most of the songs Dwight and I did, so this is everything that survived in just one episode. Uh, we did salvage one story from the corruption, even though the audio is a little shaky, make sure you stay tuned after the final song of the night to hear a very special story from Sean Boyle. No, I'm not kidding. This is too good to let go, so don't miss it. Now, a few plugs before we get to the stories. First, on Sunday, June 3rd, the Nerdalogs is hosting a Dungeons & Dragons Day at Fizz Bar. That's 3220 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago, starting at 1pm. Come play the greatest tabletop RPG with the coolest nerd comedians in the city, and me! I will be there, and it's my first time playing, so please be gentle. Uh, next, for any folks close to St. Louis, the Nerdalogs will be taking part in Project Comic Con on Saturday, June 9th, at the West Point Sheridan Lakeside Chalet. Uh, we'll be there sometime in the afternoon, I think the show is at 5 o'clock. For more details, check out nerdalogs.com. Uh, our next Your Stories recording is Sunday, June 17th, at the Upstairs Gallery in Chicago, 5219 North Clark Street. The theme of that show is Revelry, so come on over and party down. Show starts at 7 o'clock, and as always, it's free and is BYOB. So come share a story like you hear our fine speakers do today, and be part of the fun. Finally, as usual, I'd like to remind our lovely listeners that if you'd like to donate to our podcast to help cover things like web hosting, we have a button on the side of our homepage at yourstories.podbean.com that lets you do so. Thanks for all your support, and we hope to see you soon. Yeah, so when my uncle was a young man fresh out of the Navy in the late 70s, he married a sweetheart and they had a baby girl. About two months into that girl's life, my cousin Amber... She was diagnosed with a chondroplasia, which is a kind of dwarfism. It affects the limbs, really the sorts of little people you're used to seeing. You know. <laughs> when she was about a year and a half old, his wife, her mother, um, absconded with her, disappeared, completely vanished. And this was in the late 70s when uh, you could still feasibly just up and disappear. <laughs> it's not that easy anymore to just leave the face of the earth, but she did. And he spent about a decade looking for his daughter, and he was crushed. 
It's really, really hard on my uncle. And that remains the case. You know, life went on as it does. He got remarried, adopted a son, until a couple years ago when Amber's mother died. And she started questioning this received narrative that she had been given about her father. So, in short order, she hunts down my uncle (laughs) and reconnects with him. And the crazy thing is, in that period of estrangement, what Amber had done was become a school teacher, marry another, uh, another, a nice man, a general contractor in Atlanta who also had a chondroplasia, have two biological children who both have a chondroplasia, and adopt three children. Um, one from Siberia, one from South Korea, and one from Ooh. China. All of whom have a chondroplasia. <laughs> and I don't know how sharp your math is on the fly, but that's seven. <laughs> There's seven of these people. <laughs> seven dwarves. It's, it's their... It's, Email address. The seven dwarves. And not only that, they are incredibly famous. This is the largest family of chondroplastic dwarves in the world. They're called the real seven dwarves. They've been on um, recently Anderson Cooper, Barbara Walters, uncountable publications. And I get a call from my mom a couple years ago. I get a call from my mom, and this is the call. She's like. Well, I know we never really talked about this because it was painful for all of us. So, you know, we never really brought Amber up. But you have a cousin. She is a dwarf. She has a dwarf husband. They have five dwarf children. They're crazy famous. We thought they were gone. But, but they, they contacted your uncle. They, they got in touch with your uncle. And they, they're going to be a part of our family. This is a part of your family. This is your first cousin and your second cousins. And they're really inspirational and magic, and this is my confession. <laughs> it's no like, there's a reason they've been on so many shows, right? It's, people want to see this because they, they're proud, they live their lives, um, a lot of people take what they can out of it. And this is my confession, and sadly, when I found out they lived in Atlanta, and I was still flabbergasted by the entire story, the first thing I thought wasn't that this was an incredibly inspirational thing that had happened, or, or like, ruminating on on estrangement and reconnection and this amazing human thing. Dragon Con happens in Atlanta. And I don't know if all of you know what Dragon Con is, but this is what Dragon Con is. Dragon Con is the Southeast's largest sci-fi fantasy convention, and by that it is four days of beautiful, brilliant, radioactively nerdy, completely absurd debauchery, which I've been attending for the last eight years. It's like going home. It's just an amazing thing. There's nothing quite like it. And when my mom says that I'm related to seven dwarves that live in Atlanta, the first thing that happens is this picture in my head develops above me. And it's me. It's me and I'm Chewbacca. And I'm just like... And in any configuration you could possibly imagine, the entire rest of the cast of Star Wars, and I mean all of them, Shame to say, I have to admit it, even for a moment, a, a tiny Lando, but you can't put a prepubescent dwarf in blackface, because it's wrong. It's wrong! You can't do it. But it's 
that's all I could think about. And I thought, like, what, is this a possibility? Would it be something that I could do? And I know, I know that, I know that these people, you know, they're strangers, but they're family, right? They would let me into their home. They would feed me. They would let me stay there for some reasonably finite period of time. I'm sure there are a lot of things they do for me. But would they do this? And I thought about it a lot over the last couple of years. And all I keep coming back to is maybe, why not? Because after all, they're family. <laughs> I thought you were going Ewoks with the... With yeah, the yeah. No, who doesn't want to be a Chewbacca? That's to scale. That's a good point. I lost my place. Sorry, have Alright. Oh, I was so worried it was going to be a depressing story. Oh, that's awesome. You realize he may exist as solely the best internet meme of all time if you pull that off. Like, that's probably going to be pretty up there. At this point, it's a long con. Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. I've been looking forward to this all month, Uh, especially with the team's family, especially since when I talked to Eric Garneau. I was like, dude, you have to do sitcom renditions, and he's like, already a step ahead of you. Editor's note, you'll never hear these. And even more, I was going to enjoy explaining what the sitcoms are about to Andrew Bentley later on. <laughs> when you find out about the adventures of the Code Man, dude, and, and Bruce Lee Urkel, oh, the, I could go on. Um, I, um, yeah, uh, yeah uh, I wanted to talk off the cuff tonight. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have enough journal entries to talk about seventh grade, so I'm dealing with this family. It's mostly just arguing about my report cards. Uh, but, um, you got father, mother, sister, brother, but I see your party has no wizard. (laughs) Um, I consider myself very blessed where I come from. I don't mean to brag, but I do. I, um, I love my family. It took me 22 years to realize that I actually loved them. I didn't hate them. I never had problems with it. I never entirely got them. I didn't always have fun on the family vacations. I was the brother that locked himself like in the room and was just watching TV or reading or, or other things. Uh, but that's I, I distanced myself from them. Not And never bad blood. I just always had more fun and adventure with friends. And other friends' family, as terrible as that sound. I would go on vacations with them, and it was awesome. Um, my mom did not like sleepovers. It was nothing against the kids I hung out with. Uh, she just would, like, give this crazy laundry list of reasons why. Like, you didn't realize how much of a sleepover is an inconvenience to your mother until she lists how many things you got. She's just like, yeah, I got to feed them, then I got to clean up, and you guys are going to build a pillow fort, and then I got to take it down. And you're going to yell at me because I took down the pillow fort. But the family is probably the greatest support system you can ever have. And that's not strictly just blood. It can be blood or bond, in my opinion. A family isn't just genetics, as we've covered a number of times tonight, that there's a number <laughs> of factors that define it. Um, I threw myself into the world of comic books and adventures and plenty of escapism. I still this day love it. I will never retire being a geek. If it hasn't stopped at this point, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I love it way too much, and fiction is so much cooler than real life. Um, 
But you look at everything. You look at the Avengers we talked about. You look at the Justice League. You look at the Ninja Turtles who eat pizza all the time and skateboard. Like, that's like the greatest life in the world. <laughs> They're all, in their sense, a family. There's no one, and I'm, I know you hear these a lot in speeches, like, who's to define it? Webster's definition of whatever is this, that, the other. But a family can be anything. Like, we look in comic books, you could feel like an alien whose entire planet has blown up and will never see the last of your species. Your parents could have died in Crime Alley, uh, you know, or various other things. Clearly that didn't happen to anyone here. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one thing particularly that put it in perspective uh, is Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, I think that you look at each one of the key ingredients of it. You got your knight, your paladin, your leader of the group, noble-hearted, who started. Maybe it's your father, maybe it's your mother, I don't know. You have the cleric. You got the priest, the healer, the nurturer, the person that's always there to pick up the pieces, the one that's your moral compass, whatever your belief is. You have, uh, you've got the rogue, the shady one who you feel like you can't always count on, but just in the clutch, out of nowhere, they come in and save the day. And they surprise you. Uh, And then you have your fighter. You've got the person who is stubborn as can be, but will sit there and defend you to the death, whether it's with fists or whether it's protecting, whatever. Um, But each one of those are key ingredients. Like, that's what makes a family. I, myself, never really fit particularly one of those roles. Uh, I fancy myself a jack-of-all-trades, but absolutely a master of none. (laughs) I've never thought myself any terribly good or exceptional above anything else. But I remember, to date back to middle school Sawyer, I remember being so lost in middle school. I remember, like, being utterly confused. I did not know what I wanted to do. I, academically, I was terrible. Maybe average. Slightly below average on that. I was horrendous at sports. I remember telling my dad just because I thought that's what every kid was supposed to be. I was like, I'm going to be in the NBA. He's like, I don't think you are. But he told me, he, he, my dad, for one, would find little things about the way that I play different sports. Basketball, I was maybe the best at at the time, and that's still not saying much. But he'd find little things like, but you got that shot. You got that nice shot. It's just every time he said you just kind of finesse it in. But there's a whole number of other factors. If I was playing by myself, then yeah, basketball was my game. Uh, but my dad also taught me about the three Fs, um, I think, that are the key to success. And it's in this exact order. Um, the first is faith. Now, that's not to say just religion. I think it's just to find a belief in something and stick to it, no matter how illogical it sounds. That if it makes sense to you and if it works, then you stick by that. Next is family. They are always there for you. They are blood. And it may be hard. And families, I understand, come in very, very different shapes and sizes. I watched a lot of my friends go through different things with their families. I came from, like, the purest white bread, boring, lame family. But like Patton Oswalt said, we need families like that. And I grew to appreciate that, too. I appreciated their boringness and their lameness because it helped me become who I am. And lastly, but certainly not by any means least, is friends. We need friends. Because things may come up. Your family may not always be there due to a number of factors. 
There could be anything that comes up. But friends can take over that position of family. I have, I've lost a lot of friends for different reasons. Sometimes because I thought maybe I was an asshole or I didn't like what they were doing. Whatever the reason was there, I don't have as many friends as I used to. And it's fine. I push forward because I still have my family at the same time. But I think other people can utilize those friends that they have because the two are kind of interchangeable. Um, I uh, moved out here in Chicago uh, last September. Um, And it was weird. It was a big change for me. Normally, I'm not a fan of change. I don't like it unless it's completely decided by me and I know how it's going to be and I get neurotic about the whole thing. Uh, When I left, uh, several things happened. Um, One, for the first time in my life, I saw my mother cry outside of settling an argument with me and my younger brother. Traumatizing her. I, we loaded, finished loading up the truck and she had turned away right as a tear was coming down. And I had never seen my mom cry. My mom didn't even cry at my sister's wedding. And it was no discredit to her, but that's the first time I had ever seen her do that. And it was right as she said, I love you. The other thing that I saw, I uh, didn't see, but it was right the night before I left. I got a call from my youngest sister, who's 14 years old, who I love to death. Um, she didn't get a chance to say goodbye. So it was fine on the phone, and I hear it get quiet. And I hear her start to cry. And that was the most heartbreaking part about leaving, was that I'm only going to see her a few times a year. And I'm like, there's so many things I want to teach you before I leave. And I'm going to miss you a lot. Because she's the one person that will call me when I am having a rough day and pick me up in that little adolescent like thing that just kids have that we don't have as much as we used to. And I want that. I want a family more than anything. A lot of people don't, and I know it's really weird to hear someone my age say that, especially when they're single. <laughs> and especially when you're on Match.com and you're like, no, seriously, I want a family. And I'm not going to rape you. Uh, um, but that's what I want. And it takes time, and it's frustrating, and I feel like I hit my head against the wall. But I know it's going to happen. I know it is out there, and I know it's possible. And I watch How I Met Your Mother... And I think that that show, and I think that that show is actually kind of bullshit because Ted Mosby's dated a lot of really hot girls, and they were nice, and I don't get it. But and I still watch it. I don't know. And Robin's life is not so bad. And I thought it was kind of bullshit that it was her and Neil Patrick Harris getting married. The anyways, if it's a week past the episode, it's fair game. Um, like you didn't know it was going to be Robin uh, anyways but wrapping up though that's what I want and I think and I think a lot of the people here do want the same thing and have had learned to find to bring their own sense of family to things um, and hopefully in my rambling and impromptu speech I hit some good points that made sense and didn't bore you guys but thank you for your time guys and congratulations to you guys very much that's Um, thank you very much, Sawyer. Um, thank you very much.
I can see Dwight likes stewing when you start criticizing How I Met Your Mother because I know you get a little defensive about that show. Well, like, even now, you're like... No, it's just the thing is, they explain why Ted hasn't been with those girls. Dwight, I love the show, but I'm getting more and more frustrated. Trust me, I'm like, I've stuck with it a lot longer than other people have. I mostly just really hate Robin complaining. I'm like, you're beautiful and you have an awesome job, and that's what she wanted. Yeah, so she's, she works for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah! <laughs> Bring it home, Chris Geiger. Thank you for diffusing that. Are you um, sure this, this theme is an Avengers? <laughs> Maybe later. So the next speaker actually caught a 5 a.m. flight from the East Coast to be here today. This is true. She is a nuclear person of some sort. (laughs) Not like Dr. Manhattan, like she works with with nuclear stuff. I'm I'm in the humanities. What do you want from me? on your stories, so Yay. come with me. Uh, and like a lot of your stories that I've heard, this starts in high school. Uh, when I was 15, uh, sophomore year, met a nice young boy that I really liked, and we had started dating. He was a year younger than me, and we had six weeks of the Mm, worst relationship in my life. Not, I mean, not not that bad. Just nothing ever happened, <laughs> and it was super, <laughs> just super boring. And after six weeks, I was tired of it, and I was like, "Yeah, we're done. We're done." And uh, to his credit, he had some stuff going on, uh, as demonstrated a week later when his mother passed away. Oh. <laughs> uh, after. A battle with cancer, and it was not the best. And then uh, three years after that, my father passed away from cancer. And my mom, Amy, knew that this boy, David, David's father, Jeff, had, you know, gone through the losing of a spouse thing. And they, so she kind of went to him for support, and they ended up falling in love and getting married. (laughs) So now... (laughs) Now, my stepbrother is my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> I believe, I believe uh, when, when Jeff sat down his, his kids and told them that he was, you know, seriously with my mom, uh, David's response was, you know, I was the first one to date Amy, and I was the first one to date Sidemen, so you should be more original. <laughs> Um, and not that I have a lot of proof to back this up, but I assume when this situation happens, it's hairy at best and not, not, you know, not the ideal family situation, but I consider myself lucky because our family is wonderful and, you know, my mom is my best friend and my stepdad is. I'm like the nerd daughter that he never had because his kids are kind of all hippies. <laughs> and, There's a difference. And, which, <laughs> <ouch>. <laughs> um, and, you know, we joke about it at all family event, at all family affairs. Like if we're, when we're all together, um, they insult David's taste in women <laughs> and insult my taste in men like all the time. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, whenever I, David doesn't live in Chicago. Um, he was in New York for a number of years and now he's in Portland and whenever, so we don't get to see each other that often. But when we do, you know, we'll usually go out to a bar, have, have a couple drinks. And that's like the first thing that he tells the bartender because he thinks it's such a great icebreaker. <laughs> like, hey, guess what my relationship is with this girl that's sitting next to me. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I don't really know. There's not really a moral to this story. I just thought it was funny. And like, I just wanted to say to this room and the internet that I just consider myself so lucky that my family is so wonderful that this is like a point of pride with us and just so supportive. Yeah. <laughs> Let me let me answer Sean's question during that monologue. You question the difference between nerds and hippies. I, that was selfish because okay. I'm kind of bold. Well, here's, so. the, here's the difference between nerds and hippies. My Showers. stepsister. And has made our like super scientist stepfather like wear crystals when he has a cold. I think the difference between nerds and hippies <laughs> is nerds went to McCormick Place last month. For the comic convention, uh, he went to the comic place this month to get punched by police. <laughs> so proud. Um, okay, uh, Bill Kanko of the New York So, yeah, shameless plug, our, the next Nerdalogue show has a theme of the end of the world. Nice. <laughs> and somehow my family monologue and my end of the world monologue are the same thing. <laughs> this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. T.S. Eliot, my father's favorite poet. In fact, whenever I think about the end of the world, I always think about my dad. His favorite movie was Dr. Strangelove, and Mad Max, all three of them, were required viewing in my household. <laughs> he was a product of the times, I guess. He grew up in the, you know, in the Cold War, like a lot of our parents did, when we, as a country, had a hundred times the nukes needed to end all life. So, no wonder the baby boomers were so obsessed with this post-apocalyptic genre. Well... My Chicago world is ending. I'm going to move at the end of the summer because I'm running out of school to take. It's a ratio of 22 of my 28 years have been in school, which is 85% of Bill thus far. I came to Chicago for school, uh, like my father, so I could be a beardy, bike-riding weirdo just like him, so I could become a professor like my father and his father before him. I moved here for grad school, which was a mistake. But life is not a video game. You don't get to reload save points. So regret is a useless thing, and it doesn't even get off the bench on my emotion team. (laughs) (laughs) That's as close as I can get to talking about emotions. (laughs) I think I should at least reflect on what Chicago has meant, which for me is grad school. The other thing that Chicago had... Which is improv goofiness, which is just fun and frilly, but I only found that about two and a half years ago, and of my five Chicago years, that's only 50%. So, grad school is the through line. How would I describe a half decade of biology? 
Lots of confusion and bloodshed. You basically don't know what you're doing, but you gotta keep going. I'd like to think that all those animals were sacrificed for progress, but there's no undo button on a guillotine. (laughs) Confusion and bloodshed. Sounds like the motto to the most hapless family in Westeros. (laughs) How did I get here? Well, if you want to be an academic, you start early. In high school, my ratio of AP exams to times I had sex was a lot to none. (laughs) That's infinity percent. No regrets. What's next after Chicago? I don't know. If you guys haven't noticed, the job market is being a dick spot. (laughs) My father's generation had a promise, a social contract that if they went to school and worked hard, they'd be rewarded. Well, our relationship is at least 30% movie quotes, so when we talk about this now, I say, we had a deal, old man. (laughs) The chances of a biology PhD to get a tenure-track position have fallen to 15%, which is one in six meaning I had better chances at making a Herald team. <laughs> Luckily, improv has prepared me to deal with a certain amount of uncertainty, of, of unmet expectations, so when the rules get changed halfway through a scene, I have learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. <laughs> what are the chances of living through the end times? Well, none of us have before, and nobody gets to see it after, so really, we're pretty lucky. We are the princes of a decadent and dying empire. We as a country spend $580 billion on the Department of Defense and $31 billion on the National Institutes of Health. That's 18 times less on understanding life than on blowing it up. (laughs) Confusion and bloodshed. This is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. you man i know i'm gonna miss you i guess yeah. i shouldn't speak for everybody but um, I, i'll miss you enough for some of these motherfuckers who don't even care um <laughs> uh, we don't bring people down here chris we don't well, 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 it's not people <laughs> it got real this is how i met your mother all over again mike holiday So usually I do a story that I know on top of my head, but I happen to have a story that I wrote in school in like a half an hour before class <laughs> that ended up being, I think, pretty funny, so I'll tell it. It's going to be in like a southern accent so everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all love her to tell little Rufus? No. We lived out, in that, out there in the shack of the old bayou with his pappy, Big Rufus, his brother, Middle Rufus, his sister, Rufalina, and his mama, Jane. Sometimes they call her Lady Rufus. They, they all live there, but they ain't really too important to the story. Uh, now, everybody... No, well, hold on. <laughs> messed up there. <laughs> Not even though they called him Little Rufus. He's just as big as daddy. Heck, he might have even been bigger. It's a, good thing that's, it's a good thing he had that going for him because the boy was dumb as the summer day is long. You can look at that boy and tell this, the space between his ears was about as empty as a flute and squirrel. That's what they call it down here when you shoot a squirrel in the behind and the bullet comes out of his mouth. 
<laughs> Side note, that actually happened to a friend of mine as he was hunting. But anyway. <laughs> Folks were telling him a joke and he wouldn't laugh at it a couple of days later. Some people say it because he came out feet first and he was born. Other people say it's because all the swamp gas later Rufus was huffing back when she gave birth. There was one thing Lil Rufus was good at, and that was catching stuff. There was one living thing he couldn't get the best of. Birds, rabbits, fish, squirrels of the non-fluting variety, and the common cold. You call it, you, you, you name it, he called it. One day he was out, one day he was out by the bayou and he saw a frog. It looked all, looked pretty unnatural. It was big, brown, had green shots. Looked like he knew more about the world than Rufus ever would. He walked over to, to it and said, hey frog, I'm gonna get you. The frog just blinked. Ain't you gonna run away? Little Rufus asked, gently expecting the frog to respond. Again, the frog just blinked. Little Rufus chuckled himself. This is a frog too dang stupid to know how to run away. I'm gonna catch him and I'm gonna teach him. We're gonna run us a frog ways. He picked up the frog, put him in his shirt pocket, and ran home and started training his champion frog. <laughs> the next few months, that frog went everywhere and did everything with Little Rufus. They went swimming, played in the mud, ate meals, they even used outhouse together. Like they even had one of the inspirational training montages that people talk about. <laughs> he loved that frog more than he loved his own kin. And the frog didn't seem to mind too much either. He just let the boy dole on him without an every bit of fuss. Sometimes you swear you catch a smile flash fro- across the frog's face. Which ain't make no kind of sense because frogs can't smile. But sometimes the love between the boy and his frog ain't got to make no sense. <laughs> Eventually it came... To- for the time for the big frog race and all the kids from around the bayou with their best frogs ready to win the trophy. <laughs> they fashioned from an old old bike wheel, a milk crate, and three shoes and a garden belt. Everybody expected Jimmy, the nine-year-old kid from the edge of the swamp, to win this year's race because he had flashbacks from the Civil War and that made him a master strategy. Petunia <laughs> <laughs> was another front runner because she was probably the angriest out of the bunch on account of being born only one eye. Kind of thing messes up kids, you know. <laughs> One thing he didn't count on was Lil Rufus and his secret weapon. Mainly because this would be the first time he ever managed to bring the right kind of animal to the races. Last year he brought a skunk, and the year before that he brought half a beaver. Lil Rufus did his frog and said, All right, now, this is going to be a tough race. But you're the champion, and you're going to win. Frog just blinked. Just then he remembered he never gave the frog a proper name. Can't have you being no champion without no name. I'm going to call you Hoppin' Jack Sampson because you was a frog. <laughs> he said, he said, feeling satisfied with this choice of name. Once all the children placed their frogs at the starting log, they all set at the other, they all got set at the other end of the patch. A small grass aid had for, they used for the race. They all started hollering for the frogs. Right away, three to seven frogs hopped into the nearby pond. One got halfway down the path but got snatched up by a fox. Another one didn't even bother moving. That just left Hoppin' Jack and Petunia's frog, Periwinkle. That frog took one look at Hoppin' Jack, sized him up, and died around the, right down the spot. That left Jack with a, with a, with, in a clear to hop to... Uh, can you read my own <laughs> That left Jack in a clear to hop along to the finish with no competition, which he did. By then, Petunia was angrier than a bull that got a bee sting in the testicles. She grabbed a big rock and tried to smash Rufus's frog, but he pushed it down and saved the day. As some of the other kids helped her up, Jimmy scolded little Rufus, saying that a man should never put his hands on a woman unless he's got no spirits in him. This is what Pappy told him, anyway. 
the kid. <laughs> the kid started chucking rocks at little Rufus seventeen because of lack of that perception and all. And then he grabbed his frog and his trophy and ran home crying the whole way. After sitting in his room open for what's been like a week, little Rufus came out of his room and asked his pack for a hammer. Boy, what you gonna do with this here hammer? Big Rufus asked, not even sure his son knew exactly what a hammer did. I won't make something, Pop, little Rufus told his pappy. Big Rufus smiled the widest smile he ever smiled in his whole life. This boy gonna make him make boy's gonna make him proud. Finally he would he wouldn't have to keep him locked up in the cellar and folks came by to visit. <laughs> he hugged his son in a way a shamed father would the first time in 12 years and sent the boy on his way over the next four days from sun down to sun up all you heard coming from the back of the shack was the sound of hammering Jane was a little worried because she never seen her boy pay attention to anything for longer than five minutes Big Rufus told her not to worry because that boy's going to make something real special just then little Rufus ran through the screen of the front door shouting it's done it's done the whole family ran around the back to see what the back of the house and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Right in front of them was a shiny thing. It was about four feet high, eight feet wide with all manners of lights and smoke coming down out of it. Rufus asked, what is it? Little Rufus shrugged. Well, boy, it's certainly a thing, Big Rufus said, wondering how <laughs> nobody noticed this thing before it was done. <laughs> little Rufus nodded. Suddenly Hoppin' Jack hopped out of Little Rufus' pocket and stood up on his back legs. Family all looked at him with wide eyes. Lord Rufus, I must thank you for rebuilding my ship. It would have been. <laughs> That's where this is going. That's where this is going. <laughs> I would have had the most dreadful time fixing it, fixing everything had it not been for your sizable frame, Hoppin' Jack said in a most dignified voice. <laughs> what you talking about, Hoppin' Jack? said Lord Rufus. You see, I'm not a native of this poor excuse of a planet you call home. I come from a world light years away and that is infinitely superior in every way. <laughs> it's time for me to return there. I bid you all adieu. Jack said, putting on airs. Can I come with you, Hoppin' Jack? The boy asked sincerely. First of all, my name is Othello Moonwalks, and we know you can't, said Othello as he began to walk towards the ship. He jumped inside and started pushing all sorts of buttons and knobs and and everything looked like it was ready. He took one last look at the boy's sad face and decided he'd take him after all. He opened the big dome on the, the dome window on the ship, waved little Rufus over, and he cheerfully hopped in, and they shot off into the sky. That was the last anyone's ever seen or heard from little Rufus. No, not really. They went on, like, several space adventures, including one time when Rufus saved all the aliens from uh, this space manta ray who sucked out emotions. <laughs> the end. <laughs> funny stories um, and I would like, like to let you guys choose which one you want to hear uh, it's a choose your own adventure yeah choose your own scare 
One of these stories is about my cousin and Santa Claus. Uh, another one of these stories is about my mother and father and marijuana. Um, so <laughs> both of my parents smoke cigarettes. Um, I don't. Uh, I'm an avid smoker of marijuana. Ooh. Uh, don't tell. What's going on the internet, Joe? Uh, yeah, well, what career do I have to ruin? Like I said, both of my parents have smoked cigarettes since the day I was born. And they've always, um, kind of like we mentioned earlier, they were always like, do as we say, don't do as we do. Don't, don't smoke. This is an awful, awful idea. As they just took a long drag on their Newports and... and uh, whatever other cigarettes people smoke. <laughs> um, I assume Newport is the most common brand. I, uh, when I was little, my dad all, also used to smoke a pipe, and he would always smoke it in his recliner in the living room. It was in the one corner, and I remember that, that the tobacco in the pipe always had a distinct smell, and it smelled like dad's recliner, dad's pipe. That, that place had a smell to me. Um... And eventually he stopped smoking that, and they, they just smoked cigarettes. And uh, Flash forward to college when I uh, started smoking marijuana. And I moved into a house that the guys had been living there a couple of years. And every time they smoked, they went up to the act to do it. Because, you know, it's on campus. You've got to hide it and, you know, be secret. It's exciting. <laughs> um, and as soon as I got in the attic, I was like, man, this place smells familiar. Uh, <laughs> it smelled... <laughs> Like my dad's pipe. It smelled like my dad's recliner. It smelled like that corner of the living room. I was like, this... Oh, but the guys also smoke their cigarettes up there. I was like, oh, okay, this is probably why. After college, um, I moved back home while I'm saving up money to move to Chicago. And my, uh, me and my parents have always had a pretty open relationship, talking about whatever. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole, the whole deal. Um... But I, I, at this, up to this point, we had never really talked about me doing drugs. Uh, or them. But I mentioned, I was like, hey, just so you guys know, I smoke marijuana. So I might go outside at some point and come back with red eyes. And, you know, because this is when I picked up a college. And now that I'm living at home, I want to keep doing this, but I don't want to be weird. And they're like, that's not weird. It's okay. By the way, <laughs> we used to smoke a lot, too. Uh, we used to smoke while, as we were married, uh, up through when you were born, until you started talking about the smell of dad's pipe. <laughs> once you recognize that a smell, my mom was saying this, she's like, once you recognize that as a smell, I told Carl, you have to stop smoking. Um, however, the funny part is that this, this coming out liberated him to pick up the habit. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, this isn't a secret anymore. My little brother was now at college, so it was just the three of us living at home. So me and my dad would toke up sometimes. Um, moving to Chicago, I've at least twice found a way to get some supply back to him in Ohio. Uh, and recently he told me that he got a connection <laughs> from somebody that 
it's medical stuff. <laughs> so he's going to start hooking me up. <laughs> so I felt very grateful that I could share this experience with my family. And, you know, like, on TV and in movies, this is something like embarrassing or something like the parents shame you of. Uh, but I was able to build a connection with my parents. And uh, in fact, one other person in this room has gotten high with me and my dad before. While we were coming through Chicago. I won't, I won't mention his name in case he becomes an esteemed professor at any point. Like his father and his father before him. Thank you. Thank you. I'll censor that so you guys won't know what it is that he smokes. <laughs> Anybody else before we have the last fella go? I have a quick one if we're not short for time. Alright, real quick, inspired by the last story, I had a real dark phase in my childhood where I learned I could feed my marijuana habit in high school by ripping off my little sister who also wanted marijuana. So I would, I was selling, ripping her off. Like, taking half of it, keeping it for myself, and charging her the full price, and now I'm smoking for free. It's her allowance. It's what she wants to do with it. Um, So she got caught, and my father looked me in the eyes and said, Sean, find that motherfucker selling her drugs. You kicked the shit out of him. And I was like... Oh, I'll look into it. <laughs> so, fast forward a few years later, uh, me and my sister are both adults, and we're both on college break, I think Thanksgiving, and we take the dog out for a walk, we're going to have Thanksgiving dinner with my grandma, and we're just walking, and my dad just like, takes out a joint, he's like, you guys are adults, you want to smoke? And we're like, it's like, okay, and uh so yeah, we got really baked, and we awkwardly ate Thanksgiving dinner with my super Catholic grandma, just staring us down. That was one of the worst decisions ever, and uh, still haven't had the courage to tell him that I was that piece of shit, but maybe if he gets me high enough, I'll tell him next time. And again, this is all being recorded. I'll censor liberally. Um, anyone else? Yeah. Come on up. I don't know your name. I'm sorry. I'm Rebecca. Rebecca. <laughs> um, so I, I come from your, your typical American family. Uh, my brother's sister and I are not related at all, and she's actually his cousin, not his sister. Uh, so my brother is my half-brother. We have the same father, but not the same mother. Uh, his mother's sister and her husband died in a car accident when their daughter was like two so my brother's mother adopted her into their family so it's her it's my brother's birth cousin but adopted sister uh she has a great advantage she's applying for colleges right now and she has a great advantage in that uh she took her new father's last name uh so she has this blonde blonde hair bright blue eyes she is pastier white than i am uh, and her name is Hannah Cervantes. <laughs> uh, so it's going to be it's good for her for good scholarships, get into college. Um, my parents, uh, my parents, well, I, I'm kind of on the same page with you of like marriage being like, oh, I don't 
I, is it really? Are we really saying forever? Because most people, that, not so much. Uh, my parents split up when I was probably like six. Uh, my father got married just over a year ago. Uh, this is his fourth wife. Um, we were sitting at Christmas. My dad brought a bunch of old pictures, and my sister picks one up, not intending this to be a joke. Turns it around and says, "Hey, Dad, who are you marrying in this picture?" <laughs> Had no, like was like, I know it's not my mom. I don't think it's my brother's mom. Oh, this was your first wife when you were twenty that none of us knew about until I was like fourteen. <laughs> uh, but it's. It's a really, I, I can appreciate my parents when they split up, they put their kids first. That they were like, okay, we don't like each other. We drive each other crazy, but we're going to fake it. So our kids don't have to deal with all the drama that comes with parents hating each other. Uh, so my dad comes to my mother's house every year for holidays, and he brings whatever girlfriend or now wife that he has. Uh, and my brother, when he graduated from med school recently, we're all at this pian- dueling pianos bar in Boston. And uh, my, my dad is a colon cancer survivor. He has a colostomy, which if you don't know what that is, they basically turn your intestine out and through a hole right here, and you have a plastic bag. And then you, you know, a couple times a day go and empty that, and then you close it back up again, and then you're good. Uh, So we're at this dueling pianos bar, and my dad is drunk. He's having a real good time. Uh, And he, like, he disappears for a while, and he comes back, and he's giggling, and he, like, whispers something in my mom's ear, and then they disappear together. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like... Uh, and I know there's nothing, like, romantic. My mother is, like, like she, you can see on her face when she's like, all right, your dad's here, I'm okay, I'm okay. He's just, he's very needy. Uh, so they disappear, they come back, and I was like, what just happened? And my mother says, well, your father's colostomy bag broke, and he shit his pants, so I had to go in the bathroom with him and help him clean it up. But she did this for her ex-husband. And the best part was, my sister and her boyfriend, he was driving the van full of this awkward, weird family. Uh, He's driving the van, and my dad is like, did you guys see me? I was up there with those dueling pianos, and I was singing the song, and everybody loved it. And my sister's boyfriend, not knowing anything about this colostomy bag or the incident that had happened that night, for whatever reason, says, well, gee, Lynn, it sounds like the only thing you didn't do was shit your pants. (laughs) And my dad said, nope, I did that too. (laughs) That's my story. I would like to have an episode just about piano bars because I have a uh, Anybody else want to go up? Yeah, go. Charlie yeah. Canal. Yeah. Ex Pencil Worker. Oh, Ink Magazine Writer. Ink or Inked? Inked. Inked. Pencil Magazine Writer. You interviewed some pretty cool people, right? I have, and they're all much cooler than me. I was hoping you would name drop right there. No, no, no. I saw what you were trying to do. Point out, they're all Shut much, down. much cooler than me. Alright, so this story is about some of my extended family who all live in Boston and are very, very fucking Boston. Like, we're Irish, we're drunkards, we're bad people. So, I was like 19 at the time, 
And I was on a road trip with two of my friends where we went to seven baseball games in seven days in seven cities. And, which is actually a lie because we went to two in New York. But, you know, Queens and the Bronx, it's like two different places. It's fine. <laughs> so, we're staying at my cousin's house. And my two friends are from Morris, Illinois. Does anyone know where Morris, Illinois is? I do. All right. So they're pretty conservative, haven't seen weird stuff in their lives. Uh, So the three of us end up staying at my cousin's house and uh, when we're going to Fenway. And we get there, my cousin's there by himself. And we talk to him a bit. He gives us beers, even though we're 19. And uh, you know, we hang out. And it's like, all right, well, tonight, no one will be home when you get home, most likely, because it's your other cousin's bachelor party. So, you know, just go go to bed. Everything will be fine. So, we come home after the Red Sox beat the bejesus out of the Mariners, which was awesome, <laughs> and uh, go to bed. And my buddy Foss is in one room, and then me and my buddy Bill are in another. And you hear all this commotion and rattling around, and all of a sudden I hear my Uncle Pete going, Who the fuck are you? (laughs) And I hear Foss go, I'm Charlie's friend. I was like, Charlie? Charlie's here? Oh, where's Charlie? Charlie, what color's your hair? Because <laughs> at the time, I was a bit of a punker. I was like, I just woke up. I was like, blue? <laughs> and then I hear him yell to everyone downstairs, Hey, everybody, Charlie's hair's blue! <laughs> and just cheers. <laughs> and, eventually led to my Uncle Pete coming into the room, dragging me out of bed, making me drink with them till six in the morning. I held my cousin off like the porch, like kind of the side of the porch, as he threw up for about five minutes, looked up at me, he was like, you, you ain't from here, you weren't here tonight. I'm like, no, yeah, I know, I'm your cousin, I'm staying, he was like, no. And kept throwing up. And uh, so my, my buddies that we're with, as we're leaving, we're just like, what What happened last night? It's like, what do you mean? It's like, they came in. It was like conquering Vikings, coming into the house and just turning everything upside down. I was like, what, isn't that what everyone's family's like? Apparently not. <laughs> Andrew Bentley. Alright, I actually I kinda hate to bring the, the mood back down now after like all the, the good funny stories we've been having here. The no but I mean usually I like to do kind of tongue in cheek stuff and uh, I don't know for uh, for family I know there's something a little more personal I want to talk about. So <clears throat> If I were to say, the present is defined by its immediacy, the assertion might strike you as meaningless, an insipid tautology requiring little thought, less scrutiny. And I would agree. 
But I avert anyway as a basis from which to add that in that immediacy, there is a cruel distance. Overwhelmingly, the present affords nothing but the experience itself, and that act of experiencing uh, robs events of their context, reducing the most momentous of phenomena to component banalities. This heartbeat, this breath, the flash of light against the lens of our eye, an atomic bomb detonating one nucleus at a time. Consequently, it is rare that we recognize our watershed moments as we live them. Instead, they stand like pylons in an ebbing tide, looming out of the past an inch at a time as the ocean recedes before us. If we could peer ahead, through prescience or chaos theory, to the final act of our mortality, every shot fired and point counted, would we live wiser lives? Would we balk at our scarred hides and deny our consignment, or like Cassandra would be but weep bitter tears at our inevitable tragedies, born of unseen decisions we cannot hope to puzzle or divine? With every choice, each word, each breath, we travel a thousand simultaneous vectors, tumbling and cascading off each other, subtly altering the trajectories of friends and lovers and strangers, and perhaps most tellingly, family. I have an older sister, and while the four years separating us now seem inconsequential, uh, not so many birthdays past, those 1,487 days spelt the difference between subject and God. I worshipped her, took her word as gospel, and she in turn cradled me in the sunshine of her grace. There were barbs, of course. She ruled neither wisely nor quietly. But if I was once found weeping on the sofa, convinced my severing of a do-not-remove tag meant I was soon to be arrested by the mattress police. <laughs> That was balanced by my own favorite joke, wherein I would wait patiently by her bedside in the morning, chin on her pillow, so that her first sight on awakening would be my contorted gargoyle rictus. <laughs> this game, incidentally, was in turn purchased by at least one bloody nose, but even then I was aware that comedy came at a price. <laughs> my sister loved comedy. Uh, when she would stumble upon me reading my anthologies of Foxtrot or Calvin and Hobbes, she would sit beside me and we would read the panels out loud together, a cast of two. Under her direction, I filmed my first sketch on the family camcorder, uh, an interview program where we assumed the roles of various costumed oddballs, trading off the role of straight man in alternating segments. She was never a diligent student, but she loved assignments with a creative component, and I was often on call to help, as Jack from Lord of the Flies or by lending my monstrously camp lisp to a Barbie doll rendition of the Odyssey. Uh, this gay caricature, in which my sister took a proprietary joy, reached both its apex and nadir in the aforementioned sketch show, where, among other characters, we invented the brilliantly satirical figure of Bob Faggot. <laughs> the, the joke was that I wore my mom's lingerie and lipstick. Neither she or dad... Got it. Uh, and the character was quickly banned. But as true auteurs, we were undeterred. It was not critical response that ended our collaboration, or even the inexorable advance of time, although I'm sure my impending puberty would soon have stripped our hijinks of their juvenile charm. Rather, my professional relationship ended the day my sister ran away from home. She was gone for weeks, and then on Christmas Eve, she returned. Uh, it isn't my place to discuss my sister's own struggles, though I would never minimize or dismiss them. Suffice to say, she returned a different person. Uh, she had brought us presents, but later she confided to me that they were stolen. The tree was decorated, but she had not been there to share my helplessness when our father put down his ornament, collapsed onto the couch, and openly wept. With unaccustomed boldness, I leveled the accusation some days after her return. 
I've made mom and dad cry plenty of times, she bragged. And in that moment, I knew that I hated her more than anyone in the world. In the months that followed, I learned first to fear her moods, then to mimic them. I developed a black anger of my own that came through in my schoolwork and landed me in the counselors. I fought at school as I didn't dare at home, where my sister once dug her nails into my arm so hard she drew blood in five places. Family gatherings were things to dread, and I would flee the dinner table before the last drop of milk had passed my tongue. And then things got better. There was no illuminating spark, only a long sunrise, and it was years after she had graduated, moved out, returned, and left again, that I suddenly realized we were friends once more. Now I couldn't even point to our bad times on a calendar, or compass their scale in days or years. Yet I can occupy them in an instant, with baleful accuracy, like a divot in an otherwise smooth plain filled merely by the passing of thought. I remember what it was like, and I can feel it. That Christmas, my sister's bitter words, her nails in my arm, I can feel it destroying my life, ruining me. But the thing is, it never did. My family has a history of depression. I love my sister dearly. And if I hadn't learned about the vulnerability of our lives at her hands, I would have learned it from some other betrayal. That Christmas is one of the defining moments of my life, but it didn't change who I am. Erica did. Every time she dug out the camera, or handed me a costume, or sat and read with me. She taught me to perform, to create, to love those things. She taught me that people might actually be interested in the things that I could do. She probably doesn't even know she taught me these things. I didn't for a very long time. I only hoped that I changed her too. Not in a big way, but in a way that matters. In a way she can be proud of. Because I'm proud of her. Thank you. I feel like this is really special, you guys. I'm not even kidding about this. Like, I love, I love doing this so much. To end the night, something very special is going to happen. Uh, some of you have seen this before. This is pre-podcast. Dwight does an amazing Ed Kowalczyk from Live Impression. Yeah. So we're going to get a little bit of that tonight to check it out. Except that I'm going to sing it like Fred Schneider. <laughs> like the process. Oh.
ocean that was hers. Thoughts. I feel a little undressed by Dwight's <laughs> eye contact. And, uh, but um.
so when I hear the word family, I instantly think of the word divorce. My parents split up when I was four. So it's kind of a weird time because you're not really forming memories. So I just kind of grew up for a while thinking like that was normal. Mom and dad don't love each other. But, so it's not that this made my childhood bad, per se. It's more so anything good worth remembering seemed to end badly. So one of these examples was my father took me on a summer road trip to Montana. And it was a great trip. But when we got home, he was arrested for kidnapping. Apparently there was some miscommunication. But nobody really explained it to me. So all I knew was that my father was handcuffed and taken to jail for taking me on vacation. Then everything goes back to normal. And no one talks about it. And they just move on. Oh, it's... Your dad's turn to see you this weekend. Don't worry about last weekend. That was weird. (laughs) That's part for the course. Okay. Whatever. I'm six. Okay. (laughs) So my mother eventually remarried. And my stepfather had loving intentions. And I remember him teaching me about reptiles, comic books, and even some filmmaking. We'd make these really cheesy home videos and try to get on America's Funniest Home Videos. (laughs) And, um... See, there were some good memories there, but um, all that said, things went south quickly. Uh, His daughter rebelled against my mother, and I, in turn, rebelled against him. So six years of marriage go by, and I remember when my mother looked me in the eyes and told me with a celebratory smile, we're getting divorced, so that's good news, right? For a while, I silently wondered if this was all my fault. And to this day, I still don't really know why they even got divorced. My mother married her third husband about two years later, and I'm 13, 14 years old. We were a happy family for a while. Again, it's a reoccurring theme. Um, But just like clockwork, six years later, everything falls apart. At this point, I was an 18-year-old whose bedroom was tragically located directly next to theirs. So I found myself in the middle of their divorce. Things got ugly, and I took my stepfather's side. Right or wrong, what I did was for him. What I did for him was A, what he would do for me, and B, what nobody else was going to do. This situation escalated to the point where criminal charges were pressed. My mother told me I had to live somewhere else, a very loving way to kick me out. Um... And I got subpoenaed to this court for this trial, for the charges that were being pressed. I'm sorry for being vague. It take a long time to get into every detail. <laughs> um, so I'm a witness to these alleged crimes. And I told my mother's family that I was going to testify to defend him, no matter what. They asked me, how could you do this to your mother? My only reply was, he needs me more than she does. For the time being, I spoke to my stepfather every night on the phone. And he was on the verge of suicide. And I do believe he would have done it if it wasn't for my support. My mother begged me to not show up to this trial. But I stood my ground firmly. 
She eventually dropped the charges before it got to that point, thankfully. And I happily got out of the way, and they had a normal divorce. To this day, my mother and I merely wear a public, a polite public layer of tolerance of each other. We spend holidays with this gigantic pink elephant in every room we share. But this story concluded over eight years ago. And I've spent those years telling every person that will listen, this is why marriage is bullshit. (laughs) Probably angrier than that. (laughs) But through my writing, I have challenged my perception of what family can be. And even though I can't promise I won't make similar mistakes as my parents did, there is one promise I can keep. And that is to stop living in the shitty story they created for me and start living my own. So I'm proud to announce that Diane and I are expecting our first child this November. Yeah.